Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. For many years, Stephen Costlin had the sort of research career most academics dream of. A highly influential psychologist who was one of the pioneers of harnessing emerging new brain scanning techniques to probe his theories of mental imaging, he spent most of his academic career at Harvard, a good chunk of that serving as Dean of Social Sciences. And then, quite unexpectedly to many, he moved on. First to set up a new Center for Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, then as founding Dean of the Minerva Project, a brand new undergraduate institution, and most recently as the founder and chief academic officer of Foundry College, an innovative adult education initiative. Why the sudden change? Well, it certainly wasn't due to any ill will towards Harvard, a place for which Stephen clearly harbors a great love. It was just that, determined as he was to directly apply his ideas about the science of learning to a broad range of different people and activities, he naturally felt the urge to plunge into the largest possible spectrum of educational environments. My career arc, I think is fairly typical of a certain kind of academic, where one starts off uh, focused on basic questions and does a lot of basic research and fills pages of journals and so forth and it's all very satisfying up to a point and then at least in my case started thinking about applications so you know what can we do with this I mean I have a practical turn of mind much of the time um, and that has led me to leave standard academia and work for a startup trying to do something massive but also led me to think about applications of basic research so I started off with um, a book on PowerPoint so right. I had the honor of being chair of my department uh, at Harvard, which required me to be at every talk that was given there. Every talk? Just about. Every job talk, just about every talk, every public talk at least, for sure. Every job talk, for sure. I bet they didn't pay enough for that. Uh, well, they're pretty interesting, but, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, what I started noticing was that some of the world's experts um, were not wonderful at presenting their ideas, and, and they were violating the kind of psychological principles you, you presumably learn as an undergraduate. And so I started taking notes on how they were presenting rather than what they were presenting. And that led to this first book I did on, on PowerPoint, clear to the point. Um, and it, it consists of eight principles which are harvested directly from the basic science literature. And I show how you can use them to good end, to present material in a way that's clear and compelling. Uh, so that, that general approach of trying to see what's out there that's you know, low-hanging fruit and show how it can be put to use led me to write the book about top brain, bottom brain. Can, can I just interrupt you for one second? Yes. What was the response uh, of your colleagues and then the wider professional world to the, to the book on PowerPoint? Very little, by the way, response. Occasionally I get an email from somebody. I remember one where I had 
review the literature on um, psychological literature on effectiveness of various kinds of graphic communication. And this was all in footnotes and somebody had and notes and somebody had written saying they had overlooked those and didn't realize that I actually had some real scholarship in the book. And I thought that was striking that they were more interested in the literature review than yeah. than actually putting it to I think it's the point. It was interesting. Uh, it was interesting. <laughs> Have you noticed? Um, I, I want to get back, obviously, to the point. Yeah. But it's. I was. I didn't look at this book. I didn't read it. Um, I was struck by the, from my perspective, the seeming incongruity of someone in your position writing a book on PowerPoint to the extent that I had to actually do a search and say, "Is this the same Stephen Coslin?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've actually written two books now on PowerPoint. Yeah. yeah. So it became something of a hobby. Um, yeah. Have have, have have the. Have you noticed any change in, in academe uh, in terms of, I mean, very, very smeared out, but the quality of the presentations? Is there any sense that this book has had some sort of an impact? Or, or no. Oh, okay. No, not, not that I've noticed. Uh, but, you know, hope springs eternal, and sure. if we wait long enough, the ideas may percolate out. Um, I mean, Don Norman had written a book on the design of everyday things right. well in advance of this book where he came up with a set of principles which overlap a bit with mine, which I didn't know at the time I wrote my book, to my embarrassment. Um, and his book has been widely, widely read, sure. but I still see violations of those principles every day. I mean, when you leave this building, you'll see that the door handles invite you to pull when in fact you need to push to get out. It's a classic violation of his principle of affordances, you know, the way that it, right properties of objects invite you to interact with them. And, you know, it takes a long time for these, these kinds of ideas to percolate out, but you do what you can. Sure. So moving to top brain, bottom brain, or whatever the second edition will be called. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, similar motivations in terms of uh, spreading the message to a, to a broader group of people? Well, it's more than spreading the message. It's actually figuring out what the message is. So, so the basic science, people just want to find things out for their own sake. That basic science is all about. Right. So how perception works or memory or whatever, um, just to figure it out. Right. But once you know that, you can then say, well, since we know that similar colored objects tend to group together, we can use that to have a label group appropriately with a part of a bar and a bar graph or something. You can put it to work. Right. So, with respect to top brain, bottom brain, the basic science concerned these two big parts of the brain, that one that's on the top and one that's under your temples and below. This is cortex, the covering, the outer covering. I'm not talking about stuff inside right. the brain. And it's been known for a long time that these two big major parts of the brain have very different functions. Just basic science, um, some of it involving monkeys, a lot of it involving studying humans who've had strokes, which prevent blood flow, blood flow to certain areas of the brain, so you get brain cells that die, yeah. so you, and then you get behavioral deficits that accompany that loss, and also neuroimaging, seeing what lights up when people do different things. So that there's a, a large amount of data that documents that there are differences between what the top parts of the brain and bottom parts of the brain do. But nobody really thought about what the implications of those basic science results are for everyday life, for the kinds of things that ordinary people care about. So that, that was the project, right. was to think about 
what we learned, in particular my colleagues and I, Gregoire Borst and uh, Bill Thompson, did a big meta-analysis, an analysis of analyses of literature, uh, neuroimaging and, and so forth, that from, the hum from human data, to try to figure out how best to characterize what the top brain and bottom brain were doing. And once we had that in hand, it, it occurred to me that there were some interesting things one could do with that in terms of um, personality, basically. Okay. So that, that was a novel approach, um, for better or worse. And it's definitely a theory. It's definitely a set of structure hypotheses. It's not been tested in detail, so you don't want to believe it. But it, it's certainly plausible enough, because it is based on these findings, plausible enough to take seriously and think about. So before we get there, let's back up and let's specify the differences between top brain and bottom brain. Okay. Um, and let's uh, make sure that everybody's aware of, of the, the starting point, as it were, for the development of this theory. Yeah. Um, so what are the differences between top brain processes and, and, uh, and bottom brain processes? So the meta-analysis that we did, this analyses of analyses, um, revealed that the best way to characterize the top brain is in terms of, sort of proactive activity, setting up plans, um, how you're going to thread your way through a crowd or do something very concrete or abstract, executing those plans, which involves a sequence of things you do, monitoring what happens, and then updating the plans. Top brains, about serial kinds of processing occur over time that's driven by plans where you specify some goal. Bottom brain is not so much serial, it's very parallel, and it's not so much about being proactive as, as receptive. It's about analyzing what's out there, classifying and interpreting. And the two obviously have to work together. So in order to update the plan, you've got to see what's happening, which involves classifying. So the top brain is making use of information coming from the bottom brain. But also the top brain gets you ready to see certain things and interpret in a certain way. So the a, a classic example is to the farmer who is gathering his cows at dusk, a shadow of the right size may count as seeing a cow because you, you, your expectations have, have primed you, have gotten you ready, so it doesn't take that much. And that's a top brain influence on bottom brain. So the two are always interacting. It's, it's, it's very unlike the left brain, right brain idea where it's one or the other, left brain, right brain. The two are always interacting, a single system, but different parts of different things. And you do talk, you make a, a point of talking about systems, not just where things are happening in the brain, right. but that they, there are these systems that are spread right. out. In addition to the fact that they're, they're interacting, presumably they're also happening uh, at a very fast level sequentially to the, to the extent mm -hmm. that information is being processed from one point to the other mm -hmm. and so forth along these, mm -hmm. these various different systems. And you use this wonderful analogy of riding a bike mm -hmm. as well, that you have to be mm -hmm. putting these things together, you don't, you're doing so many things simultaneously when you're riding the bike, you don't look at this as uh, at one particular activity as bike riding stuff or something else. It's all integrated as, as part of that. And the parts are all designed to interact with each other. Right. So it's the system as a whole where there, there are certain inputs, force on the pedals, force on the handlebars, right. whatnot, and there are outputs. The thing moves and you can steer it and so forth, and everything in between works to create the outputs from the inputs you've got. So the, the brain is, is at one level, one big system, but then you can break down into smaller subsystems, and each of those can be broken down and so forth. Right. So, but it's all of a piece. It's all working together. So you don't want to think about 
being top-brained or bottom-brained. I mean, it's a really bad way to look at it. Uh, but you can think about the balance, the relative contributions for a given person of, of top-brain activities versus bottom-brain activities. And that's the core of the idea that, that we developed for this uh, new theory of personality. Right. So that, that, let's get to that. And let me, let me uh, request that you make a few definitions uh, along the way sure. as, as, you, as you go forward. So maybe you can sketch out um, uh, the, the basics of, uh, of the theory. So the idea is that all of us use our top brain and our bottom brain all the time. We wouldn't survive a minute without it. You, you need all that. But we can use them to greater or lesser extents. So not necessarily better or worse, but just engage them more and have the contributions of the top brain system or bottom brain system or both or neither play a larger or lesser role in what we do. So the theory of cognitive modes emerges from the idea that, that people can have different balances. And th this comes out of um, a theory, and then we developed a testing instrument which backed up the theory. Um, in that the scores on this instrument um, are barely correlated at all from the top brain scale and the bottom brain scale. So if, you're, if you tend to prefer using top brain processes involved in planning and setting up sequences of movements or actions and so forth, uh, it doesn't say anything about the extent to which you like to analyze things using bottom brain processing, analyze them in detail. All right, with looking for subtle interpretations and so forth. They really do appear to be separate systems, which is a bit of a surprise, but it seems to be the way it came out. So thinking about that um, invited us to construct a simple two-by-two two table. So you can think about the extent to which somebody likes to use top brain processes a lot. And it's a continuum, but we can divide it in half and say, not so much or a lot. And then same for the bottom brain. So not so much or a lot. And that gives you four combinations. So someone can use both top brain and bottom brain systems a lot in ways that are not required by the situation. It's sort of basics that we all do all the time, but rather are voluntary that are initiated internally, endogenously right. initiated. So if you use both a lot, I call that operating in mover mode, which means that you, you like to set up plans, you like to observe the consequences, interpret them fully, update the plan. So there's a feedback loop that's coming up. Definitely a feedback loop. It goes in both directions, actually. Right. So uh, obvious examples are people like, um, oh, by the way, when I say example, I mean their behavior illustrates it. I don't know if they operate in this mode or not, because I haven't tested them. But their behavior is, is typical of someone who does. Someone like um, Michael Bloomberg of New York, who was extremely good at setting up plans and then adjusting them as results came in and being quite effective. So I call that mover mode. And then if you're inclined to use the bottom brain system a lot, so you interpret what's out there in, in great detail, but not so much the top, I call that perceiver mode. Mm -hmm. So someone like the Dalai Lama strikes me as a pretty good example. He's incredibly wise, very perceptive, thinks things through, but was not the most effective politician that he could have been when it came to dealing with the situation in Tibet. 
wasn't so good at coming up with detailed and subtle plans. Mm -hmm. So that the balance goes a little bit. The other way of doing things now is where the top brain is used a lot and not so much the bottom brain. And this I would call stimulator mode. So this, someone who's operating in this mode, I'll come up with lots of ideas, but not correct them as they're executed so well, because they're not interpreting what's consequences are in any great detail. So the, and the last mode um, would be what I call adapter mode, where you don't endogenously, you don't set up plans that you've thought of yourself using the top brain system, and you don't think things through in great depth using the bottom brain system, but rather you let external factors set your agenda, and you kind of, you're a good team player. Right. So I call that adapter mode. So those are the four modes. And, and the, our study suggests that people have a default, a typical mode they're most comfortable with, but they can change modes and they can be different in different situations. So even though there does seem to be a default, sort of all else being equal, it's not to say you're trapped in it. It's not a personality trait in the way that some of the Right. Some of the personality traits are right. So I want to I want to get back to that, but um, just to to emphasize or to highlight this, one of the things that I, I quite enjoyed uh, in in the book was that you give you give uh, examples of hypothetical examples of the sorts of people who would be in these particular modes, which I think yeah. makes it easy for people to identify with the sorts of things that you're talking about. So you right. you talk in addition to examples of living individuals such as Michael Bloomberg and the Dalai Lama and so forth, you, you talk about, um, you give examples within the context of a community meeting or something like right. that. So you'd have somebody who would be uh, the president of a community association or what have mm -hmm. you who would be saying, who would be setting fundraising plans and, and checking whether those were successful and moving forwards and that would be somebody who would be presumably very much in mover mode because he'd be he or she would be planning something and then getting that feedback and then moving forward. The person in perceiver mode would be, and I think we've all seen this many times, the individual who would be not saying very much during the course of the meeting, taking things in, um, but then when she would say something, it would carry a lot of weight and it would typically be quite astute. Um, you talk about somebody uh, in, in stimulator mode who would be the sort of person, again, that we all recognize, the guy who's just got a million ideas, bouncing them all over the place. Mm. <laughs> some of them make sense, mm. some of them don't make sense. Mm. Uh, who knows whether or not they'd be followed up. And then the, the person in, in adopter mode would be the person who would be, as you say, going with the flow. And again, we all recognize these types mm. of characters. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think um, that has quite a bit of resonance to somebody who's not an expert in this because they can identify with those sorts of people and, and granted it's somewhat stereotypical as any description would be, but it does give a rather tangible sense of things. But if I'm sitting here listening, I want to get back to this in more detail and look at the scientific uh, basis because you keep pushing me into here's what the studies are, here's what the data is, and I, I, I go back. So I, want, I understand that you're a scientist, you want to talk about the science, and so do I. Uh, but before I do, I want to move somewhat tangentially into the left brain, right brain thing because okay. you brought that up before. Yeah. Um, so again, if I'm somebody listening to this, I say, oh, okay, well, whatever. Last time I checked, they were talking left brain, right brain. Now this calls this guy's talking up brain, down brain, you know, whatever. It's all just yeah. the coffee's good for you one day, coffee's bad for you the next day. Yeah. What, why, why was everybody so interested in left brain, right brain before? And why do you think that's actually not very relevant now and, and has been superseded by a different distinction? Well, people want to understand themselves and they want to understand people around them. 
So it's not quite any port in a storm, but when scientific evidence seems to suggest that there's some basic discovery that has relevance for understanding yourself and others, people gravitate towards it because they're interested. Right. So the left brain, right brain story, very compelling. I mean, Roger Sperry got a Nobel Prize, a credible source. Um, the trouble was that the actual findings were much more narrow and specific than the way they got shaped by the popular press. And not him, as you not as him. Great, great pains to point out. Not him. So, and many people pointed out, uh, this is not news. I mean, decades, people, uh, scientists are aware that the, the hemispheres do different things. There's no question about that. But they're not writ large, like one is intuitive and one is logical and one's language-oriented, one's perceptual and one's creative and one's analytic and right. so forth. It just, it doesn't work that way. Those are way too coarse. The brain is a single system. Uh, different parts do different things and they work together. Right. So the, the problem with the left brain, right brain story is that there's a negative truth. It got expanded way beyond recognition. So the, the functions that were characterized are just simply not correct, A. B, there was this idea that one hemisphere or the other was doing something, um, not that they were working together as a single system. And then the final piece is that they actually talked about people as being left-brained or right-brained. Right. And it doesn't work that way. I mean, if you look at neuroimaging results, you know, it's not like this side's lit up. What do you know? And well, and Charlie over here, the other side's lit up. In fact, you can see it because there's more blood flow on one side of so their skull has started to get a little deformed to make room for all that blood that's gone to one side. Uh, it, yeah, it's, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. It just, it's a single system. So I don't blame people for wanting answers. I don't blame them for turning to experts. But there, there has been this regrettable tendency to go way beyond what the results have actually shown and create a cartoon, essentially. Right. And, and, and this, uh, as I understand it, there are two things. I mean, one is, uh, I was going to say systematic. Maybe that's a misuse of the word systematic. But a system-oriented way of looking at yeah. things, as opposed to just a regional way of looking right. at things. That's one big distinction. And the other, of course, is right. what these systems are. And you pointed out, you point out in your book that um, the, the sorts of things that you're talking about have been around a long time, relatively speaking, 20, 25 years in the, in the mm -hmm. scientific literature. Mm -hmm. um, and there, of course, there's, there are all sorts of uh, nuances and subtleties and debates, but, but there is widespread consensus about the main points that, mm -hmm. that, that you were bringing out. And, and for whatever reason, and we can talk more about that as we talk about popularization and how that works and, and so forth, um, for the most part, that hasn't gotten out. That message really hasn't gotten out to the general public. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, so let, let's let's move to the let's move to the science now. Uh, that is to say, the science with respect to the theory of cognitive modes, mm -hmm. the meta data that you have done, the meta analysis that you have done, mm -hmm. and the tests themselves. What have you found when you do these personality tests, and how have they been correlated? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. how how confident therein are you that there's really something to this after all? Right. So the test was based on the results of the meta-analysis. So looking right. at the characterization that came out in terms of what the top brain system does and the bottom brain system does, 
we constructed items where you're asked to rate on a five-point scale how much you agree that it characterizes your preferences, what you like, like to do or don't like to do. Right. Um, the prediction is that if we get it right, when you do something called factor analysis, where you look at the relations among the items, you should really get two separate clumps, one that reflects top brain, one bottom brain. The trouble is it's actually an art form to construct these tests, because when you come up with the items, they're never pure. You say, do you like uh, to gather up tools in advance before you start some project? Well, that's supposed to be a top brain item. It's supposed to top, tap into this planning, setting up stuff. But if you visualize it and you start thinking about a particular case, you would sort of recognize in your mind's eye, now using the bottom brain, actually, system. So you, you, get, you get a blend of the two. And it's an art form to figure out items that really tap primarily one or the other. So it took us hundreds of, of testing hundreds of people with four, four different iterations of these things to get items that actually finally did satisfy the criteria. They, they clustered separately. The correlations in one group were higher than they were with the other group internally versus externally and so forth. This is this paper we wrote up where we described this in some detail. Right. So once we had the test, we then showed that A, it's reliable, that if you give it to people twice, you get the same results pretty much. If you don't get that, then it's worthless. And then what we did is we looked at its relation, the scores, the relation of the scores in the test to scores on standard personality tests to see if we came up with something different. So there's something called the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which is the most popular personality test out there. About 2 million people a year are estimated to take it. And it turns out that it's, it's four dimensions, and they're pretty highly correlated with the standard Big five, four of the big five personality dimensions. What are the big five personalities? Uh, if you take te various tests of personality and you do this so-called factor analysis, you, you correlate the items and, mm -hmm. and you look at what underlie, what common influences underlie the correlations, you tend to get five factors, okay. which you can, you can remember by the acronym OCEAN. So O is openness to new experience, that's one factor. C is conscientiousness, E is extroversion, a is agreeableness, and N is neuroticism. Um, and it just keeps coming up over and over and over again. It's a really good description. So Myers-Briggs looks like it taps into that. So what we were hoping for was something new, that the, the theory of cognitive modes, which is not another way of recasting what was already known. So it turns out the, the top-rate items are, in fact, weakly correlated with some of the other personality tests, and even intelligence which we thought, well, okay, making strategies is not a big surprise. Would you look what's on t intelligence tests? It's not a big surprise. Not huge correlations, mm -hmm. like 25% of the variance max. Okay. Um, so most of what's going on is different. But the striking thing was the bottom rate scores are not correlated with anything. So the, the items that reflect your preference for categorizing and interpreting what's going on out there in some depth and subtlety, those don't seem related to anything else that we measured. Hmm. And so when you combine those with the top, because the whole point of the modes is the relation between top brain processing right. and bottom brain. Given the bottom brain is not related to anything else, the mix of the two is going to be something different. Sure. So, so that, that was the point of the research we did. And as soon as we finished that research, I, in fact, before we finished the research, I was already leaving Harvard and going to a situation at Stanford at that point where I didn't have a lab. 
So we just had to finish it up. And now I work at a startup where I definitely don't have a lab. So I don't, I, I'm hoping some of my former postdocs and collaborators will take this the next few steps because we, we've now got an instrument that's usable, can measure this stuff. Um, it seems plausible. Um, but it has not been directly tested. I mean, as you say, you think about these modes, we all recognize people like this. Right. I mean, I was delighted when this all worked out. Um, but nevertheless, we should test people and see if a lot of these predictions work. So a lot of the predictions are about interactions. So you, you would, in the face of things, you might think that somebody who operates a mover mode, who is coming up with plans and carefully analyzing what's going on and adjusting the plans accordingly, would always be the best leader of a group. I don't think so. I think it depends on what the challenges faced by the group. Presumably what the dynamics are of the different types of people and how they interact and all the rest of that. That's right. So, so there the are predictions that come from this theory of things like if it's a really hard problem, maybe you're better off having somebody who likes to work in stimulator mode is just throwing out sure. ideas and somebody who likes to work in perceiver mode will filter them as opposed to somebody who's in mover mode, who is probably a little more cautious and sensible. But sometimes you need to be not sensible with the first phase to come up with wild ideas. So there are predictions like that that come out of the theory that have not been tested. And I would love to test them, have somebody else test them. And I'm sure you've seen this, uh, we all have, but you probably have a, a, a disproportionately high amount of experience in observing this sort of thing in your capacity of of being dean at Harvard, because uh, I mean, I, I know I was an academic administrator for some time, and there's this whole question of how do you assemble the right group of people, mm -hmm. and the people, uh, however they're defined, and I'm not necessarily using your categorization scheme, but the, the sorts of people um, within one equivalence class, mm -hmm. um, they always want to recruit people within that exact same right, class. They want right. they, they want to recruit people just like them, and that's the only that's type right. of real scientist or, or real academic or, or whatever. Right. And of course, if you really want to advance the scientific effort, you do tend to need a wide variety of people who can interact and bounce off each other. Absolutely right. So this, is, this mirrors, in fact, many of these things. Um, I, I did want to ask um, a few questions, because I, I, I took this, t I, I, I tried taking this test. I'm not a big one for taking personality. Did you do it on the, online or? Uh, no, no, I bought the book, right? Yeah, I mean, online is easier because it automatically scores it for you. No, I didn't, that's, 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 uh, that's too transparent for me. So the problem, the problem that I had um, is, so I tried to be as, as honest as I could in the responses, but to me there seemed to be a real correlation with interest so that and passion yeah. as, as, a, as opposed to uh, maybe some of the things right. that I would have imagined would be pure. So let me give you an example of what I was talking about. There was one question which said something like, when you look at a garden, do you, do you look at the patterns that are in the garden of the plants? Yeah. And there was another one which said, when you buy clothes, do you look to see how that will integrate with the, with the rest of your right. wardrobe and so right. forth and so forth? Well, um, I'm not somebody who is completely immune to, uh, to aesthetics. I do actually look at things quite carefully sometimes. I don't tend to care about gardens as right. a general rule. I, I don't, I, I'm, uh, this may come as a shock to you, but I, I am not somebody who obsesses, I mean, as, as, as well-dressed as I am, I, I am not somebody who regards clothes as, uh, I don't even shop for clothes, right. okay? I uh, shouldn't admit this on camera, but it's been a very long time since I've actually bought any clothes for myself. So. Um, 
It's true. I'm sorry. <laughs> but so, so what I'm saying is when I, when I look at this and I try to answer this, yeah. uh, these questions, I think to myself, okay, well, I don't care about this. And I don't care about that. So, right. um, so I realize that you're, you're looking at ways of evaluating, am I using my perceptive uh, yeah. capabilities or am I not using my perceptive capabilities? Am I planning? You this like to use them. Yeah. Yes, am I inclined yeah. to do it? But, it? but that's the real factor which enters into, right. into my responses to these right. tests. And I'm thinking, how accurate can this be if I'm thinking, yeah, well, I know what he's trying to go for, but I don't really care about this, I really care about that. Right. So the items came out of factor analysis. So we didn't just make them up. I mean, we did make them up, but we gave them to people, hundreds of them, many, many more items that showed up in the test. Right. And those are the ones that won. I mean, I was surprised by some of them. I wouldn't have chosen them just based on my own taste and preference, but they have the right properties mathematically. That is, they cluster into these two separate groups, right. which neatly map onto the top brain system and the bottom brain system. Right. And they correlate internally much more than they correlate across and so forth. Plus, the test has the right properties that you can give it a second time, and it's sure, reliable. Sure. I, I, don't, I don't mean to be so, attacking. No, no, I, I no. I don't take it attacking. It's, it's, it's these things wash out. Okay. So the, the point is that for any for you, you're not interested in clothes, but somebody else <laughs> is, and they're not interested in what you're interested in. Right. And so the, the, the point was, over all these people we tested, there are some items that are going to just be noise. And some that tap in, and so you can't you can't take a subset of these items. That's the tricky thing about test design, because right. it it's it's all of them. In fact, in the order they're in, the order is actually important because of various transfer effects and so forth. Oh, really? So yeah, so no one yeah you can't pull a single item and you can't mess around with the order. Cool. You get, you get, so why is that? You get little local priming effects and things like that. So you've okay. just thought about X and now it gets you to okay. read the next thing in a slightly okay. different way. So you you. For any given person, some of these items are not going to ring true, and that's just noise. But it's going to be different items for different people, probably. Now, when you aggregate over the items from both scales, the top range scale and bottom scale, those items are randomly interdigitated, um, the results are going to have the kind of psychometric properties on average. It's, you know, it's tested over lots of people uh, that we want. Right. So it's it's a tricky thing to bring it down to an individual because you will look at items and say just what you just said right but if, if you try taking a test a second time you might be interested in doing that because i bet you'll get a very similar score and then run it through the the little scoring um algorithm given the book in terms of how to how to actually figure out your typical mode yeah um and see if it feels right so i have a very good friend and when I was first developing this, she um, took the test and told me what her mode was. And I just said, no way. And it turned out she made an adding error. So when she rescored it, it rang true. I know her very well. So you might try this just to see. Okay. And, you, and I recommend I could taking, have made an adding error as well. I, mean. I, I recommend the online version, because the online version we've debugged carefully. Okay. So it's, it's only 20 items. Just go through it quick, quick, quick. Okay. And it'll but, do all the scoring and everything. There's one other thing that, maybe this is just me, but maybe it's other people. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned that um, in, in the second edition of the book, you're thinking about putting the test first, which I, yeah. would, I would strongly recommend because yeah. the problem is that, that 
that people pick a mode that they want to be in, and that influences, uh, because they know a little bit about it at this point, and then at the end, they, they take the test, and lo and behold, there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm, right. I'm looking at the questions with the eye of, okay, what's he testing for, what's he testing right. for, what's he testing for? Um, but the, the other point which uh, confused me, you, you make, as you have done very recently, you make a, a clear distinction between being in a mode and being intelligent. Mm -hmm. You say that they're not the same thing. You make a distinction between being in a mode and being proficient in thinking in that particular mode. You just happen to think in, in what that you like mode. To do. Yeah. And you, you, you seem to be very clearly non-hierarchical. You say, look, there are all these different, there are these four different modes, basically, and they're all roughly equivalent. Um, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, no way. I don't want to be, you know, I'm in, I'm in mover mode because I want to be a guy who's planning and getting feedback from, from these plans. That, to me, is the, is the sort of person that I would like to be. I think these adapter people are just these, you know, weak-willed guys who can't come up with their own ideas, and I don't want to spend the rest of my life being like that. I don't want my kids to be like that. I want my kids to be out there and taking over the world. So, so for me, there is a really, really clear hierarchy in what you've described. And I'm wondering, is that just me? Or are you getting that from other people as well? So I don't know you well enough to be able to say whether it's just you or not. But I think the thing you're missing is the context. Yeah. So depending on what the challenge is, different modes are more or less appropriate and useful. Right. So being in mover mode, for example, is not always useful. So you may have had this experience. Sometimes someone's really upset. They've got some kind of a problem they're faced with. They want to just be listened to. They don't want you to solve their problem for them sometimes. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, I, know, right. I know people. I know it's hard to believe. I think this man may have to be in mover mode here. Uh, yeah, there are people like that. They just, they just want, as an academic administrator, yeah. people come in, they don't necessarily want you to solve their problem. Yeah. They want a sympathetic ear. Sure. So you're better off operating in perceiver mode than leaping in and trying to solve it. Right. Or sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, the problem is really hard, slipping into stimulator mode is actually smarter than trying to be in mover mode. That is, monitoring yourself and trying to correct at what you do in mover mode is not always the best thing to do. And adapter it might mode? inhibit creativity at some oh, yeah. analysis? Yeah, so creativity, there's it, generally people think of creativity in terms of two big phases. The first is divergent thinking, where you're supposed to throw out as many ideas as you possibly can, yeah. and then only when you sort of start running down that, to engage in convergent thinking, where you start narrowing them down. So the divergent part, much better off if you're in stimulator mode when you're doing that, because you start preemptively pruning um, if you're, too, probably too soon if you're in mover mode. And as far as adapter mode goes, there are times when you're, you're just going to develop an ulcer if you try to operate in mover mode, because there's events that are way beyond your control, and you're much better off um, saving all that up for when an opportunity presents itself and being in adapter mode and kind of going with it for a while. Um, so being on a team with somebody else who's strongly in mover mode, you always want to be going like this. Might be better to be able to phase in and out. I want to be on a team. Yeah. Well, you don't want to be on a team. <laughs> well, so, so my view is that most of the problems facing us in the 21st century are pretty difficult. So difficult, it's unlikely a single individual is going to be able sure. to solve them. So and in fact, you're going to need a, a group people with different skill sets, different inclinations, different modes of preferred modes of operating. And that a large part of what we need to help students learn at this phase is how to work with people who are different right. from them and how not to feel competitive and how to figure out 
how to leverage what other people can do well that you can't, and vice versa. Right. That's part of the 21st century education from my point of view. Okay, I'm almost there because I want to, that, that's going to bring us right to the Nerva and, 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 okay. and so forth. Um, but I, I wanted to ask a few more questions about some aspects of, of what your research, albeit at a preliminary stage, has, yeah. has shown. Is there any correlation between gender and modes? Don't know. Um, we, did those, we probably have those data. Be, well, no, we don't. We probably could have had those data because the web-based, uh, the app that allows you to take the test quickly and get it scored right away, right. we could have just had people click off a few boxes, self-report, and, and then look, but we didn't do that. It would be easy to do it, but we didn't. Okay. Um, I'm not sure it matters. I mean, my, my view on this stuff is that these distributions based on gender or any, any other big demographic variable, they overlap hugely. And so, you know, you look at spatial ability, which is the biggest difference between men and women. Right, right. That's and what I was thinking. That's, that's... Yeah, but for any given individual, you can easily find men who are worse spatially than a given woman or vice versa. Um, we're dealing with such large numbers here. So when it comes down to individuals, it's not clear how useful this really is. Well, okay, so there's, there's utility and there's what's going on. So uh, yeah, I guess they're, t they're two different things. So for me, right. I'm thinking, uh, again, as a, and it has to be emphasized, although perhaps not, that I'm, I'm rampagingly non-expert, but the only thing that, uh, that I know of, of that I've heard proclaimed in terms of uh, neurophysiological Maybe neurophysiological is even going too strong, but some, some, uh, uh, some difference in behavior between men and women are uh, spatial orientation and so forth. Mm -hmm. and I, I've heard that there's a fair amount of data out there that on average men are better at uh, maps and, 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 and doing so, uh, you know, spatial orientation, and on average women are better at uh, something else. I don't even know. Verbal. Is, okay, verbal. Yeah. Um, and so I'm thinking, you're telling me about these different systems. You're telling me that, that the top part of the, uh, the, the top system is, uh, involves much more of spatial orientation and planning and so forth. Therefore, I would imagine, based upon that, that there is a statistical uh, uh, correlation between men uh, with using more of their top brain on average than women using more of their top brain, just from that, that mm -hmm. uh, structure. Now, how it is interpreted in terms of the personalities and all the rest of that, I'm not even going anywhere near there. I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying it seems to me that that's, that's suggestive of something. Is that uh, reasonable or unreasonable? It's a hypothesis, and it's, it's testable. Yeah. We haven't tested it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it is true that, that the spatial verbal distinction is, is true. It's, it's right. I mean, oh, God, try that again. It is true that, that, that women tend to be better verbally than men, and men tend to be better spatially than women. Right. And the spatial stuff is largely top brain, and the verbal stuff tends to be more bottom brain. Right. Not all of it, it's more distributed, but um, it's a hypothesis. But remember that big systems contain smaller systems, and they don't have to be tightly linked. So the spatial stuff, a lot of that is, is posterior, it's parietal. Whereas the planning stuff is frontal. So they're, they're very tightly connected anatomically, but in terms of the function, it's not necessarily the case that if you're good at one, you're going to be good at the other. It's not necessary. So, see, okay. empirical question. Okay. And, and, and so now I'd like to 
move a little bit into you you mentioned at the beginning how you're motivated to have real impact and the mm. the be in the real world after all and in theory is important but it's important uh, to actually uh, look at the effects of of the science and, and the effects of some particular theoretical possibilities and and you were talking uh, frequently about the necessity of teamwork the necessity of interacting to be able to solve various different problems um, and so it seems to me, as, a, as an outsider, I say, okay, here's this Coslin guy, he's dean at Harvard, he goes to Stanford, and all of a sudden he winds up at this Minerva thing, and I think, what the heck is that? What, <laughs> what is this all about? I do a little bit of Googling, I look and I see that uh, there's some forward-thinking person that wants to do something very innovative with education, and here's this very well-established academic who leaps out of Stanford and, and takes the place of the founding dean uh, at this new institution. So I'm assuming based upon that little tiny bit of evidence and what I've read about how uh, interested you are in developing this theory of personality so we can get a better understanding based upon cognitive science uh, as to how people might interact and work better together, that you are marrying these two things and that you are looking at this as a, as a test case of actually um, doing something productive to, uh, to help the learning process based upon your understanding of contemporary science. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, um, except that I am not so confident in my theory that I'm going to implement it as part of it. I mean, okay, I'm sure. aware of it and pay attention, but so much is known about the science of learning that has not been used systematically that could be. Like so, what? So? so I pulled out 18 principles from the literature um, 18. Yeah, I've come up with 18 of them. That's a lot. You guys, you know, in physics, you yeah. have two or three. I know. <laughs> they're, they're, well, the brain is the most complicated entity in the known universe. I have Are you sure they don't reduce these 18? You sure they're not really two or three? And if you look at them the right way, they're. I may all do it. I can give you examples. I mean, there's. All right. for, I'm just being facetious. No, it's fine. It's a reasonable question. I mean, if we did factor analysis, we could probably get some reduction. Probably has some underlying structure to it. But it's probably easier just to keep it at this level so that. In terms of easier in implementing them, because right. they are different. So what are they? So um, tell me some of this. Some of well, so I'll give you some. Um, so this stuff is not rocket science. A lot of it's been known for decades, but just hasn't been used systematically. Hmm. So what what appealed to me was using systematically what has been learned about memory, uh, motivation, uh, learning per se, and and so forth. Uh, so for example. Uh, there was a study that was done when I was a graduate student. Let me give you a study, and then, then I'll explain what yeah, it means. Sure. It's, um, I'll give you a sense. Um, it might be there's um, a, a Coke can on the table, something that's easily visualizable. And there are three groups. Uh, one is you are asked to say this sentence over and over again to try to remember it. And then you get another sentence, another one, another one. There's a long list five seconds between it, say. Second group, you're asked to visualize, picture in your mind's eye, the scene. Again, five seconds, try to remember it. Third group, you're asked to visualize it, but now you're not said, told anything about memory. You're just told to rate how vivid it is. So seven is extremely vivid, like looking at a picture. One is very, very dim. Four is somewhere in the middle. Use the whole scale. But then, surprise, you're tested. So it, it turns out that the two groups that involve imagery have the same memory. Hmm. 
and they're both about twice as good as the verbal group. So this is a consequence of depth of processing. The more you think something through, the more likely you are to remember it, whether you want to or not. It, memory seems to be spun off as a consequence of how much processing, how much reflection and thinking turning over your mind you do. That's very basic. I mean, it's why active learning works hard. But isn't this, uh, uh, listening to you, uh, maybe this is something completely different, but there are all these, of course, mnemonic techniques that have yeah, existed for different. thousands of years. I right. mean, this whole idea of, of, of having a, a memory palace and, and, yeah. and, and all yeah, that method sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so the mnemonics, they're, they're a bunch of different types, but they, they involve partly depth of processing, partly organization. Yeah. So some of it, there's another principle called breadth of processing, where you tie information into things you already know. So in the standard mnemonic techniques, you'll memorize something first and store that. It might be a palace. Yeah. And then you, you imagine walking through it and leaving right. items in different places. Right. So what you're doing is you're integrating something new with something old. So for, for example, cultures have a set of first names. You know, John, Stephen, Howard, sure. whatever. When you meet someone new, you're not actually learning their name. You already know their names. You're associating them with a name you already know. Hmm. It's much easier, much easier than storing something we knew. If you meet somebody from a different culture, unusual name, it's going to be much harder right, to remember right, it. Right. Now you have to store something new. As you have opposed to invent to a prototype up, to some extent. And, as opposed to setting up a link. Yeah. So this is, this is a different kind of thing. So depth is the more you think something through, the more likely you are to remember it. Breadth, you hook it into things you already know. And then there's organization. We can store in mind about four things at once. But each of those can have about four things. Each of those about four things. So if you organize things in these chunks efficiently, you can store in a gigantic amount of information. So that's three principles I've given you. There, there are, let's say, I, I count about 18. My colleague Diane Halpern has about 23. Exactly. So they mostly, they mostly overlap. She's carved things up differently right. than I have. But the point is, there's a huge amount known. And it's not been used systematically. So why? Why do you think it hasn't been used systematically? Partly because of legacy. People are used to a system that is very efficient for teaching, but not so good for learning. So the, the current system in universities based largely around lectures, very, very efficient. They scale beautifully. You can lecture to 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, same lecture. Very efficient for teaching, not good for learning. To learn efficiently, you've got to be engaged. You've got to engage in depth of processing. You've got to be trying to hook things up to the things you know. Those involve activities. Yeah. Okay? So you, you're not getting that. You're sitting there listening to a lecture. So what we can do now, we can push the reset button in a way you can't do it in existing universities, which have all this legacy. You've got faculty who are used to teaching certain ways, don't want to retread, so forth. We can start from scratch. And moreover, we can use technology in new ways. So it's interesting to me that MOOCs were the first big technological innovation um, in education, in higher education. Mm. The MOOCs, massive online open courses. They're just using a system that's been around for a couple thousand years. It's never been very effective and not taking advantage of what you can do with the technology. So what we do here is all seminars. It's all what we call fully active learning, not semi-active learning. Sure. So a, a standard seminar, you sit around a table, one person's talking, but is listening. It's semi-active. We want everybody to be engaged, having a good, actually fun, that they're involved in the debate, they're doing role-playing, 
they're in a small group, a breakout group that's doing problem solving. Everybody's engaged. That's where you get the real learning, the real understanding, the real mastery material that can then be used. And, and presumably they can, the, the standard learning, that is the standard lectures, be they MOOCs, be they whatever, YouTube videos or, or whatever it is, um, these students could be able to get anyway. They could use that to supplement as background exactly. before they're going. So they don't, they don't have to pay their tuition and spend their time just in a lecture that they could easily get online anywhere. So that always, for me as a, as a student, as an undergraduate at any rate, um, lectures always struck me as completely pointless. Yeah. Uh, and maybe I was, because I was a bad student, but, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but uh, as a principal, they struck me as pointless because I thought, here's this guy who's standing up in front of a class and he's, he's doing something that, this was before, of course, MOOCs, because I was around when the dinosaurs were on the earth and all the rest of this. Um, but, but you could get all that material from a book. In fact, most of the time they would say, okay, now we're doing chapter three or chapter four, and I'm thinking, why am I here listening to this guy right. Right. talk about a book? I mean, I just get the book and I'll, and, right. I'll, and I'll learn. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. It was right. almost sort of monastic. You'd be expected to recopy the book at some point, which is what you were doing actually right. in the lecture. It made no sense whatsoever. But the idea, the idea was, I think, in principle, that people were supposed to have read the stuff beforehand, and then they would go and see it being done in a different way. But that, of course, never happened. Right. Um, and, and it seems like what you're describing is really that development, where people are expected to have some familiarity, they've thought about it, they've experienced it, they've come up with their own ideas, and then they get a chance to interact. Is that fair? That's exactly right. So, so we don't do information transmission. Okay. We do, it's a radical flip classroom. They do the reading, watching MOOCs, and we're, we're very happy MOOCs exist, because people do have to learn sure. something. But what our goal is, is to help them learn to think about the stuff critically, to be able to use it creatively, to be able to communicate it effectively. We want them to be able to do something with it that'll help them after they graduate to become successful at becoming leaders, innovators, to be broad enough to be able to adapt to jobs that don't exist yet, and be able to function globally. That's, that's our goal. So we're happy that these resources exist, but completely agree with what you just said. We can't see charging money as part of tuition have them sit there and basically do what you said, recopy some, something they can get by just reading it. Yeah. It just seems pointless. I, I totally agree with what you just said. So in terms of psychology, and you have a, a, a wealth of um, psychological experience and also cognitive science. It seems to me, so yeah. when I was looking at, at um, I was going to say wet mind, but I think it was wet brain. No, it's wet mind. Wet mind, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, uh, you were one of the people um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that you were one of the people who was at the forefront 20 years ago mm. of looking more broadly at encompassing psychology and cognitive science, of bringing these things somehow together, or at least from the standard psychology perspective, um, saying, look, we really have to be paying attention to all of these things that are so exciting and, and mm. have been developed in terms of uh, our understanding of the brain through all these wonderful techniques as cognitive science has moved forwards. Is there a sense that you feel that you can be applying some of those ideas uh, in, mm -hmm. at, in Minerva? But not, not, you were very clear, you're not going to look at, at these students who are coming in as guinea pigs for the mm -hmm. theory of cognitive modes or, or, right. or, or feeling incredibly fixed in your belief that this must be the way that human beings can be categorized or anything like that, but more broadly, based upon your experience, that you would have the ability 
somehow to call upon these things that somebody who is coming from the field of, of uh, whatever cosmology might not necessarily have. Mm -hmm. Yes, that, that's right. There's an enormous amount known. It's not being used systematically. So it has been used in bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. But what distinguishes us, really, three kinds of things. One is the systematic use. As I say, we pull together these principles. The second is the technology which is built in the service of those principles. So the way we do seminars is, is over a platform. So even if the students are in the same room, they'll all have their laptops open and be looking at them, in part because we can just teach better, making uh, use of features in the platform that hinge on these. So principles. this is like using apps and stuff like that? Or what, what would it be? What, what, what oh, breakout be? groups uh, to that enhance uh, group problem solving, uh, okay. debate formats where people can both participate in the debate and also provide feedback as it's happening. Various things like that that you can you can do very quickly and easily with the platform. It's harder to do in person. It takes longer. It's, in fact, it, we, can, we can set up breakout groups according to various criteria. So we have lots of data. On, we will have lots of data on the students. We don't have them until September. And we can use that to decide who should be together for a particular problem or whatever so that students can learn to interact with people who are different. So, and and this, is, this is along the lines of what we were talking about before within the theory of how things fit right. together and how the people fit together. Correct. That's uh, correct. So we're using that. There was a form that you used, again, this is in your more from a theoretical perspective, but it was social... Prosthetic systems, or? yeah. Social prosthetic systems, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's in the book. Um, so the third thing that distinguishes us, so it's not just the science of learning and use of the technology in novel ways. Those are kind of form. It's also the content. Sure. So the third thing is, we have harvested from cognitive science, cognitive psychology, <clears throat> basic findings about um, habits of mind, um, biases, uh, ways of approaching problems that can be taught, a critical thinking. So you, every university I've ever heard of says they want to teach critical thinking. <laughs> but they don't analyze what that means. So for what us, well, for us, it means three different things. It means evaluating claims. It means analyzing problems, large part to solving a problem is figuring out how to characterize it. And it involves decision trade-offs. So if you decide this way, what happens? Decide that way, what happens? So what are the trade-offs involved? But even there, that's not enough. You've got to go one step further. So take evaluating claims. Say I say, um, um, is it true that all tall people walk more quickly than short people? What do you think? Uh, what do I think in terms of how to evaluate it, or what do I think whether it's a true statement or not? I want to know whether it's a true statement. Then I, I want it's to... false. Okay, and why do you think that? I think it's false because it's. I find it very difficult to believe that there's a correlation between height and ability to walk. Oh, wait a minute. Um, walk quickly, tall people. I think it's false, so I think there may be a correlation. Gosh, this has to be edited out because I look foolish. Um, I think there, 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 there has to, there's probably a correlation, but I think it's false because of the word all. That, uh, that, that uh, okay. definitely false because of the word all. That, that's absolutely true. Okay. So I'm, I'm convinced of that. And now maybe I'm thinking there probably is a correlation if you say most tall people walk faster because they're bigger and so their strides would be better. So, there's so what about exceptions? How do you think about exceptions? How do I think about exceptions? Um, 
so let me see if I understand the question. Can I imagine a tall person who doesn't walk very quickly? Is this? Is yeah. This, uh, yes, I can. Uh, so, Based I'm on. so I'm imagining somebody who is uh, imagining a tall person who, for a wide variety of different reasons, is not is not generally a fast walker uh, uh, because he doesn't have the normal standard gait. Perhaps because. Uh, uh, he has medical reasons to, okay. or because he has all sorts of other. So, so what you're doing yes. is now at the level of what we call habits of mind. So, a habit of mind, something you do, it's a process. Okay. And if you do it often enough, it becomes automatic, it becomes a habit. Okay? So, you can do things like look for a counterexample. You can think of somebody you know who was tall, would walk really slowly, maybe because they were old, maybe because they had an injury, just like you were just doing. Counterexample, you can also just examine the premises. So is it necessarily the case that all tall people have long legs? That's the assumption. Some tall people have relatively short legs, actually. Long trunks. And is it the case that if they do have long legs, that they move them at least the same speed as people with short legs? Right. Not necessarily. What if they're heavier? Um, so the point is that we can start with this general idea of thinking critically and then decompose that in specific aspects, right. evaluating claims, decision trade-offs, analyzing problems. And then each of those, we can look for specific habits of mind that are used in carrying out that function. So evaluating claims, well, they're a good handful, these little strategies, and we can teach those. So that's the third thing that we're doing. We are teaching specific habits of mind and also foundational concepts, knowledge you can use to build on, fundamental kinds of concepts that you really should know. As a, so what we're doing here is in the, in the early 20th century, 1920s, 30s, you saw these great books programs, mm -hmm. University of Chicago, St. John's, I think Columbia Corps did it. But the idea was that if you read this set of 100 or so books, you will be familiar with the canon. You will be an educated man, and I do me man. Um, well, that's probably fine before World War One and Two, particularly two. When knowledge started to explode afterwards. Two hundred books, thousand books, it, forget it. You can't, you can't do that. So what we're doing instead of a great books program, we have a great cognitive tools program. So we've identified almost a hundred of these tools habits of mind or foundational concepts that feed into our goals of, of helping students become innovators, leaders, be broad and global, right. um, and that will, to ensure that they're broad enough, are used in at least two of our colleges. So we, we explicitly teach these things. We don't just assume they're going to spin off incidentally by reading Chaucer or studying chemistry or whatever. Sure. We literally identify these habits of mind and foundational concepts and they are explicitly taught as a key part of the curriculum. It's really what we're most interested in. We want our students when they graduate to be successful and we think giving them these great cognitive tools is the best thing we can do for them. And after the first year when they're introduced, their grades are provisional and they're adjusted up or down each subsequent year based on how well they've used the knowledge. So again, signs of learning. We know that space practice, space out over time, much better than cramming, mass, mass practice altogether. And we, and we know that if you don't use something regularly, you're going you're gonna to lose it. So most content is lost in a few months uh, from standard courses. And we're we're going to ensure that these great cognitive tools are 
retained and reinforced so that they come automatic. You don't need to be thinking about them. Um, I noticed uh, an example, of, another example of this critical thinking piece that really struck me. Mm -hmm. um, I was at a, an event, um, and it was a dinner party afterwards, and we were talking about, that was a thing at Stanford, we were talking about, cut that please, it was an academic event. And we were talking about a finding that if you're not read to as a, as a very young child, your verbal abilities will never be as good as if you are read to. Mm. Striking finding. And there was a woman there who said, well, I wasn't read to as a child, and I came out fine. And my immediate response was missing control condition. What if you had been read to? Imagine. Imagine what if you had? You would have been, the, would have been 10 times better. Maybe perhaps. you'd have a Nobel Prize. That's what I said to her. I said, if you, if you had been read to, maybe you'd have a Nobel Prize now. Yeah. So that's a kind of, another one of these habits of mine. Look for the missing control condition. Yeah. So I, I learned that very quickly from my wife, actually. She was a, she a, she's a, a clinical psychologist, but she was a whiz at statistics in grad school and is just very good at thinking this way. And I saw her do that. It only took one trial and it became completely automatic. I don't think these things are very hard to learn. Right. If they're pointed out to you explicitly, right. and then they just bam, you can just use them. This whole this whole distinction between necessary and sufficient conditions are, are, are is exactly it's, it's an important distinction that, as you say, even very sophisticated people will uh, will miss sometimes. But um, so again, if I can, well, perhaps not again, but uh, listening to you and the enthusiasm that you have is very refreshing for two reasons. One is that. Um, very much as you say, every academic institution that I have ever been familiar with, or every academic leader who has ever said anything public, has always said two things. They've said, he or she has said, uh, we're, we're looking to develop critical thinking, and they say we are pursuing excellence. Everybody is pursuing excellence. I mean, the, the entire world is pursuing excellence, which is somewhat oxymoronic, but there you go. Um, and but very, very few people, if any, I have ever heard, um, have actually talked about what they mean by critical thinking. So the idea that you are bringing this to the fore and saying, no, 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 these aren't just vacuous words, these aren't just pat phrases, we actually have an agenda, we have a plan, we, we can itemize our habits of mind, you can say you agree or you disagree, but this is what it is that we are doing, that strikes me as quite novel and quite refreshing. And so it seems now that I have some understanding as to why you might have moved from these uh, fancy institutions that you were a part of before, because I could imagine that you might have had a bit of flack from that. Here's, here's uh, Professor Coslin, who's been a dean at Harvard. He's moved over to set up this, uh, this, this, uh, this other position at Stanford, or he hasn't moved over to set up this other position. He moved from Harvard to Stanford to elite institutions at a global level. And then he starts, he jumps ship. He is now in downtown San Francisco, and he's being a part of a startup educational venture. I'm guessing that you probably had a little bit of flack for that, or confusion, or, or something, tell, tell me a little bit about that. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of people have asked this question. Look, it's a chance to make a difference. So my, my entire career has been studying mental processes, how the brain gives rise to them, and then after the basic research stuff, or actually in addition to it, because I kept doing basic research, figuring out what the so what, what can you do with it? Right. And the, the biggest possible canvas for me is education, and that's a chance to really make a difference in the world. 
So Minerva is all about trying to provide a first-class education to people all over the world who could not have access to it otherwise. Could not have access, just not, just not enough seats at the top-rate institutions. We don't have that problem. We can take anybody who's qualified, provided we can find beds and we can find faculty. And so far, both seem to be doable. So that's a great answer, and you had me at hello, but it's not the answer to my question. My oh. question was, isn't, why is Minerva such a great place? I get that. Yeah. I already had that. My question uh, is, what kind of response did you get from your colleagues and your peers and all the rest of that? Did you have to fight off a lot of this? What the hell are you doing? You're throwing your career away, you know, all this kind of no, stuff. No, actually, I didn't so much. I mean, people were curious, yeah. but I think anybody who knew me uh, knew that I'm very interested in, in applications of basic knowledge, and I also want to make a difference. I mean, since high school, I wanted to make a difference. I sort of feel that that's part of what life's about, um, for me, anyway. So this is an opportunity that I simply wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, it's, it's, it's it, at Harvard, which I uh, adore. I, I love Harvard. I think it's, it's a fantastic institution. I have nothing bad to say about it at all, quite the reverse. But it became clear that all, all the work I did there as Dean of Social Science and, and various things that went with that, like I was on this sixth faculty committee to redo edu general education at Harvard, were going to help Harvard. But they were going to scale. Right. And, and Harvard's doing pretty well. I mean, so that was, that was good, and mm -hmm. like doing that. But it was really appealing to try to think about something that would scale. So I went to Stanford to run the Center for Advanced Study of Behavioral Sciences, thinking that would be a platform that will allow me to scale. But it didn't really work out so easily that way. And while I was there, I wasn't looking for another job. I wasn't intending on leaving. I met Ben Nelson, the, the founder and CEO of, of Minerva. And we talked, and he hired me as a consultant. So I didn't, I didn't instantly jump into it. Right. I consulted and helped them with their strategic plan and whatnot. And it just became clearer and clearer to me that if I was serious about really wanting to make a difference, it would have a big impact and they would use what, what I can do well, the science of learning and so forth, uh, this was a much better opportunity. And I wasn't going to get another one like that. So anyone who's asked me, I've, I've talked to them about this, and, and um, people are amazed that I left Harvard. I had an endowed chair there and, and been there for many years, a very young full professor and all that. Uh, people are often amazed that I gave that up. Uh, the Stanford situation was different. I was running a center. I wasn't that involved in the place. I wasn't there that long, actually. So I, I didn't get so enmeshed. Um, but I, I, once I explain what we're doing here, there, no one ever says that was a crazy move and so forth. Um, in, in fact, um, I've hired deans. We have four colleges. I've hired very distinguished academics. Um, it, it wasn't um, hard to convince people because it's, it's really quite obvious when you start thinking about it that there's a real need for something that we're trying to do here and that we're positioned in a way we can do it. We're very well funded at present. And the team here is fantastic, extremely good. And it's a kind of opportunity that just does not come very often. You talk about scalable. But what would your uh, ideal scenario, ideal realistic scenario, be like after five or 10 years? here in terms of the effect that this has had, not just on the students who come through here, right. but also in terms of the impact that it's having globally. Right. So part of what we're about is metrics. So we're about measuring how well we're doing. And part of that is formative. So the students get feedback at the end of every week so they know, they know where they stand. 
and part of it's summative, that we actually look at how well the programs are doing, including on some standard measures of information literacy and so forth. Because mm -hmm. we want to show the world writ large that we're doing a good job. And what we're hoping is that we'll be a model. That other places that still have a lot of legacy issues and so forth will see what we're doing and imitate us. We'd love that. We would absolutely love that. So that, that is a different kind of scaling than just internally. Um, there's also, we're talking globally, so major institutions in this country recruit globally. That's one of the strengths of mm -hmm. the United States and the institutions that are, that are here. Um, the, my understanding of Minerva is that um, there's a, a specific global integration mandate insofar as the students come here and then they go off in different places as well. Mm -hmm. um, it, is, is this a way uh, of being able to spread the message? Is this a way of exposing the, the, the students to a wider variety of different ideas and cultures? Is this a way of being able to provide links with other institutions, what, or all three? Or all the above, more than that. I mean, that, that's all correct. So we want, so the students all come to San Francisco over the first year, yeah. and they live together. Um, and the, the idea is the college experience. They get to know each other and, and all, all the rest. And then they go off in groups of 150. 150 is a so-called Dunbar number named after a British anthropologist named Robin Dunbar, who has tried to estimate how large a group can be where all the members get to know each other. Hmm. And the estimate varies, I think it's from like 100 to 220 or something. It's, but it, it kind of clusters around 150. Okay. So we, we use that as a guideline. So they'll go off to residence halls that we're building in different cities. And while they're there, they will make use of local resources. So it's, it's not just all the things you said, but we could teach more effectively by getting them out into the cities and cultures. Uh, we will have location-based assignments in the courses. So for example, um, in a political science course, they might be asked to go to a town meeting and try to figure out what the principles are that determine the order of speakers. And then the students in the seminar who are from many different cities, when we get mature, will compare and discuss. So we're making use of the fact that they're in different places. Moreover, they all keep a blog. And we give them feedback on the blog in terms of how effectively they're using the habits of mind and foundational concepts. Because one of the things we know from the science of learning is that what's called far transfer is difficult. You, you learn something, it's very specific for the context you learn it in. To generalize is hard. Right. And the, the best way to do that is have them use the knowledge in very different contexts. That'll help them generalize. That'll help them use it more widely. So we're making use of the fact that they are in different contexts to reinforce our general program of teaching these habits of mind and foundational concepts that we want to be great cognitive tools to be used very broadly. So we're making multiple uses of the fact they'll be in different places. Is there, a, is there an ideal profile of the sort of student that you're looking for and perhaps even more to the point, can you point to some areas of research or some areas of, of scholarship, say, because these are undergraduates, mm. um, that this is just not applicable to. So my sense is that, well, these are people who are, as you say, keen about developing the critical thinking skills, mm -hmm. keen about being able to apply skills, uh, apply their knowledge to the world in many different ways, and being mm -hmm. able to integrate and so forth. Mm -hmm. But if you have somebody who really wants to be a number theorist, or if you have somebody who really wants to be a literary theorist, um, mm -hmm. Chaucer, as you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. 
Um, could it be that this is not the right place to do one's undergraduate, or is that not the case? Can you point to any particular field? I've asked, see, now I've asked you three questions. I'm terrible at doing this. I keep asking all these different questions. Let me, let me back up and just ask you one question, which is, could it be that there is a type of student who is interested in a specific type of material who would not be uh, ideally suited, or who would not find Minerva ideally suitable to him or her, strictly because of the sorts of material that they're interested in doing. Am I being at all clear? Yeah, I think, I think there's two answers. Um, one is, in principle, sure, if somebody just wants to work in a lab, yeah. uh, we won't build any labs. We will have partnerships in the different cities with the labs and so forth, the industry labs and, and possibly other universities. And we will have a centralized lab facility that you can use from anywhere in the world, involving Waldos and you know, microscope these days is a screen with some sensors. Sure. They don't have to be in the same room. They don't, sure. they don't even have to be in the same continent. So we're building a facility at the Keck Graduate Institute that can be tapped into from anywhere. Um, so in, a, in, a, in a way, simulations and so forth. You, nevertheless, if you want to spend 12 hours a day in the lab, this is probably not the ideal situation for you. Right. Um, but if what you're interested in is anything interdisciplinary, any, anything that's on the cutting edge, this, this is what we're, we're interested in. So I don't think I would identify any given fields and say, if you're interested in X, don't come, because depending on what students are interested in, we're going to be adapting, right. adapting what we offer. Because X may interact with Y later on, and Z, and all the rest of that stuff. Right. So we're starting with a core. We've developed a catalog. We've got uh, four colleges, each of which has four concentrations within it. And that's where we're starting, and we will evolve over time. Um, but at this point, I wouldn't preclude anybody from coming. Except maybe, maybe if you're interested, really interested in athletics, because um, we won't be offering, we won't be a member of leagues and stuff like that. So if you want to compete against other schools, this is not the right place. Are you giving football scholarships? Soon? No, no football scholarships. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, they, they have their uses. Um, they do. What, what, are, what are their uses? They bring people into the system who might not otherwise get into it, and once they're in it, they may discover things they didn't expect to discover. So that's that's good. Okay. Plus, actually, being an athlete trains you in certain ways. You get certain kinds of discipline. You learn about teamwork. Oh, no, no, I, I mean, football, football. I get it. it's football scholarships that I, I, I. Oh, they bring people who couldn't afford to go to college. It, right. it, get, it gets them access in a way that simply wouldn't be possible otherwise. Not useless. It's not not a terrible idea. Just we can't afford it. It's not what we're about. We can't afford it in part because we're trying to charge the absolute minimum. So we're charging vastly less than most other places. And the reason for that is we want to reach as many people around the world as we can. We want to try to allow anybody who's qualified to be able to come. So we, we can't have really large fees. And, and you need them if you're going to support a football team and build labs and all these other things that we, we're not going to do. But what is, when you talk about qualified, so what, what is the... What is the profile of the ideal candidate? What does it mean to be qualified? So we have our own admissions process, uh, which involves three kinds of things. One is grades. So grades are interesting because they not only reflect something about intelligence, but also motivation, perseverance, things like that. Uh, we also look at accomplishments. Very important for us. We're not just in grinds. We want people who've been out in the world and doing things. because We want eventually to help the students have the tools to become leaders and innovators be broad, global. So we're looking for students who look plausible as candidates to, to develop in that direction. So we look at 
accomplishments, knowing that very often the best predictor of the future is the past. We see what they've done. And then we have a set of assessments that we have used the empirical literature to decide what we ought to be looking for. Um, and we have a proprietary way of doing a holistic uh, evaluation. So we look at the configuration of the whole thing. So it's not, no one thing is going to get you in or necessarily keep you from getting in. It's, it's really the way they all fit together. So we're looking for a unique pattern, um, which is not necessarily the same as other places are looking. We've, we've not taken many valedictorians. So we're, we're looking for students who've done stuff out in the world and so, so your forth. decision procedure is quite scientific as well. I mean, you're, you're not mm -hmm. surprisingly, you're using many of these principles or Absolutely. all of these principles in, in your decision procedure as well as uh, obviously what you hope to yep. do to impart to the students who come in. Absolutely right. We pushed the reset button and we said, 21st century, what should we be doing? What should we be doing given what's known? So, absolutely right. I want to talk a little bit about the future of cognitive science and mm -hmm. cognitive science versus psychology. First of all, uh, my, my rambling discourse not too long ago about cognitive science and psychology and, and, and your role uh, and your position vis-a-vis -vis both of these fields. Um, is, is that roughly accurate in, 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 to the extent that uh, neuroscience and psychology 30 years ago were very, very different and now mm -hmm. seem to be coming together? I was a graduate student at Stanford during the beginnings of cognitive science, just when it was starting up. And I remember being told by one of my professors, don't bother learning anything about neuroscience, it's just not relevant. You should be studying computer science and philosophy and some anthropology and linguistics, those are relevant. So I don't think anybody would say that today. Um, that there's just so much now known about the brain, especially the human brain, that's clearly relevant for understanding how the mind works. So from my perspective, the mind is what the brain does. The mental activity is brain function, basically. I mean, there are other brain functions like controlling respiration and so forth that are not mental functions, but all mental functions are brain functions. So there's a, there's a clear relation between the two. So it, 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 it makes sense. I was an early adopter of brain scanning technology and was, was early on and thinking about how to test theories not at the very beginning, but early on, uh, test theories from cognitive science using these new technologies. So, and, they, and it worked out pretty well. I mean, it turned out that, in, that you could design experiments that would produce data that bear, that had direct bearing on the issues in cognitive science, data from the brain. So that, that was interesting. And it's become the, the dominant uh, mode now, I think. I, I played a very small role in this, though. I, I was not like Mike Posner. I mean, Mike, Michael Posner, uh, was at Washington University with Mark Rakel, a radiologist, when PET scanning, positron emission tomography, was first really being developed and being used to test mental abilities. Th those guys really were the pioneers. I was sort of second wave who saw what they did and said, oh, I can see how to generalize that in some interesting ways. But what I, I guess what I'm really interested in is I'm looking at how the culture has evolved and how yeah. it may evolve in, in the future. Is there any pushback in the other direction now, in 2014? Do you have psychologists that say, everything is fMRI, I'm tired of doing all this stuff, you don't force me to go into a lab? Absolutely, absolutely. And they're not all wrong, by the way. So some of the, the neural stuff has lost theory, it's lost the ideas. It's become what used to be called functional anatomy, where you're just trying to characterize what different parts of the brain do. Um, 
So to the extent that that has happened, I can understand why there are psychologists who feel like we should be thinking about the mind in terms of mental processing first, develop those theories, and then see how they could map into the brain instead of leaping immediately to try to scan someone when they're doing some task yeah. or the like. I think you need both. There's no question about it. Um, what are the outstanding psychological issues or cognitive science issues um, that you would like to see, aside altogether from your own, so that, let's, let's take the theory yeah. of cognitive modes out of, out of, out of this discussion yeah, yeah. for the time being, and just look at, at the field or fields as a whole. Um, what, would, what would you be hoping to see developed in the next five or ten years? Well, so it's colored by my own interests and in potential applications, but I would like to see more studies that don't just group people together and analyze the data based on the group, but actually consider how people differ. And not only consider how they differ in terms of a single normative structure that characterizes the group, but how people may differ in the particular way they do things. So I would like to see more of a thought uh, to individual differences and their causes and consequences. So there is some of this out there already, and it's hard to do because you need large numbers. Um, it's going to be expensive. But I think in terms of ultimate payoff, um, we really want to know about individuals. We don't care so much about groups. Although, to the extent that we're trying to characterize what's in common across the species, we do care about groups. So it does make sense to, to aggregate over individual people and see what is in common. But it, it also makes sense not just to treat as noise, the variance, but to take the signal, the information that's in the variability, and try to make use of that. It must be a very, very difficult ongoing problem in psychology, I, I, I could imagine, because, I mean, part of this is, again, from a layman's perspective, part of this is definition. I mean, the person who was eccentric 50 years ago uh, hmm. might have all sorts of different labels associated with, uh, with him today. Um, there are all sorts of conditions that have arisen, uh, and, and there's always this, uh, presumably the, the whole motivation of psychology is to very much, as you say, explore the human condition, understand the human condition, get a, give us a deeper understanding of what it means to be human, mm -hmm. which includes, as you say, not just the general populace, but the exceptions, because the exceptions right. are the ones who very often are driving the whole human race forward. Right. Yeah. Well, it's not just the exceptions, it's the individual. I mean, this takes it full circle that right. we started by talking about at the outset. People care about understanding themselves and understanding the people they interact with. So those are individuals. They're not members of groups. They're individuals. So ultimately, we've got to take it down to the level of individuals. That, that's where we really deliver the promise of scientific psychology. One more question before I let you go. Um, thank pleasure. you very much for your time. I've enjoyed this. You ask great questions. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious, and, uh, and you know an awful lot. What, is, has, what has surprised you the most? I want to get back to Minerva a little bit, because it's, it's, it's extremely refreshing to see somebody so passionate about mm. changing the world and so forth. Um, mm. But what has surprised you the most about your experiences here at the Minerva? How rapid our progress has been. It is amazing to me how quickly we have been able to identify the, the sorts of things we think that should be taught in the 21st century. We've been able to develop a technology to teach them efficiently. We've been able to identify from the science of learning ways of using the technology to teach them efficiently. It, we've been able to attract students to apply. We've had an incredible number of people 
quality, I mean high, high quality students applying to join our first class. I mean, it's amazing to me how much progress has been possible. We found a partner, one of the Claremonts. We've, 12 of our, of our 16 programs in, in the School of Arts and Science have now been accredited from the, the Western Association of Schools and Colleges, which is amazing to me. I mean, there's this palpable sense of progress that we really, really is possible we can reach these goals and do it in a relatively near term. And presumably that's because there are lots of people out there who are starting to recognize that the time has come for something like that, I would imagine, right? Is that, is it, or, or are there other reasons why people, there are some individuals who take leadership positions? Or what, what, why is it? It's a, confluence of, it's a confluence of different things. So one of the things we're teaching our students is in the real world, it's very rare that there's a single cause. And often there are multiple causes and the consequences interact in complex ways. There are feedback loops, emergent properties, and so forth. Um, so this is a good example. I, mean, I don't think there's one reason. I think the time was right. I mean, it is ripe for disruption of higher education. Everybody realizes that. It's too expensive. It's not delivering what it was supposed to deliver, a lot of people feel. So that the, the ground was fertile. And we have ideas. And the ideas are practical and they're tractable to actually be put into practice. And the team here is fantastic. I mean, I've never worked with a better team in my entire life, which is saying something, because I've worked with very, very good people. But these people are fantastically good. So, and everyone works very hard and together. There's, there's no competition at this place. It's very, very cooperative. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Well, you're small yet. I mean, imagine when you get... <laughs> I can't predict the future, but, but, but we're, we're growing. I mean, but it, but it is amazing how progress is made. That, that's the thing that most impresses me. Do you have a quota for international students at no. all? We have no quotas for anything. So anybody who meets the bar is in. And the, the challenge is going to be to come up with ways of allowing them to afford it. I mean, we will not be comfortable if someone who's qualified can't come because they can't afford it. So we've got to raise the scholarship money. So Bob Carey is in charge of the, the Minerva Institute of Research and Scholarship. Right. We're Part of his job is to raise scholarship money so that they help these students and also arrange loans for them. And we're hoping um, over the summers um, internships that will help them pay off those loans and, and, and so forth. So it's a challenge, but we really do want to take as many international students as are qualified, as well as national students. Sure. But we really want to reach out to people who don't have another opportunity for an education like, the, like we can provide. One, one issue with being uh, an academic administrator, and, and however exciting and transformative this is, and it is, you are an academic administrator under these circumstances, uh, one issue is that one doesn't tend to have the same amount of time to devote to one's research. You made some comment earlier about mm -hmm. possible ways of being able to push forwards the theory of cognitive modes and, and look at some other data and, and you hope that some of your collaborators might be doing so and so forth. Is that any level of frustration to you? Is that just the price that one has to pay to get this off its feet and hopefully in a couple of years you'll be able to do a little bit more research? How, how do you look at that? I've continued um, my research life since I've been here. I've um, co-authored two books. Uh, one is a textbook in abnormal psychology with Robin Rosenberg second edition of that, and the other is Top Brain, Bottom Brain. Now there's a second edition of that coming out soon. So that's not bad. So it's not bad, and I've <laughs> done it, several few articles along the way. Um, you have to be efficient, and you've got to be very goal-directed. 
know what, what you want, um, and figure out your priorities. So my top priority is to make Minerva work. You know, I think that'll be the biggest contribution I, I can make. But I also want to keep the stuff I can do reasonably well uh, in, the, in the scientific uh, sphere going. And it's possible if you're organized and, and um, think about what you're trying to accomplish, you can do, do a lot. All those critical thinking skills. There you go. <laughs> critical thinking. Don't forget creative thinking. That's another big thing. And effective communication. Right. Those three big core capacities are critical for almost anything. Perfect. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that I didn't uh, no, bring you, up? You've done a great job. Wow. Well, so have you, sir. It's been, it's been a pleasure talking yeah, to you. Ditto. Thank you very much. much. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Psychology, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with Diana Deutsch, Chris Frith, Stephen Hinshaw, and Jonathan Schooler. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.